Welcome to this very special episode of the RCP Medicine Podcast, where we're joining forces with James from the Physician Associate Podcast. I'll hand over to James to introduce us. My name is James, and I'm really excited today to bring you this special episode, which has been produced with the assistance of the Royal College of Physicians. I'd like to welcome my guest this week, Dr. Laura Gorge, who's a Clinical Education Fellow. Welcome to the show, Laura. Hi, James. It's really good to be having a conversation with you. Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your history with Physician Associates? Yeah, definitely. Um, So... As James said, my name's Laura. I'm working with the RCP for a year Um, as a clinical education fellow. I, um, in my my normal time, I work as a um, palliative care registrar. So I'm in my my fifth SD5 year of um, specialist training. Um, So I'm taking a a year out of training to work with the RCP on a number of different projects and have become more involved with a recent one um, involving the physician associates um, exam and creating a revision aid for that, which I'll, I'll talk a bit in a bit more detail about later on in the podcast. Perfect. Thank you. So one of the things that I wanted to make a podcast episode about was the physician associate national exam and how PAs can prepare and and study well to pass that exam. Is there much knowledge about the PA national exam, do you think, amongst some of your doctor peers and within the wider sort of educational community within the RCP? I think in the in the doctor world, we're still getting used to and, and understanding more and more about the physician associate role. I think more and more of us are working with physician associates in our everyday work in lots of different settings. I know I've worked with um, physician associates in ITU, in acute medicine, um, and I know there's quite a few in GP land as well, isn't there? And I think, but I think in terms of the assessment, we we don't have a huge amount of knowledge of what the exams look like um, and certainly something I've been learning throughout um, my involvement with the physician associates is that there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot that we we do have in common in terms of our assessment and, and our examinations. So, and that's really helpful to know, I think, because that helps us understand your role, your expertise, what, what you can do alongside us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. There isn't an equivalent national exam for doctors, is there? Uh, it's not like every doctor sits uh, the same exam in the UK. No, that's right. Um, all medical schools have their own finals, which is the sort of exit exam um, after all of your medical training. There is now a national prescribing exam. That's something that's come in in the last few years. But there's everything else is very much set by the medical school, according to a GMC protocol and and that they have to review it as well. But um, there's not something in the same way that there is for the PAs. So I think in the PA world, obviously, at the moment, we're unregulated, but the GMC are going to become our regulatory body as well, and will set the standards for education. It's true that PAs have to sit their finals or their exit exams of their university course um, at the moment. There's also this extra layer of, of nationals um, for physician associates, which is similar to how it's done in the States as well for physician assistants in America. Um, nationals are sort of two parts. So there's an OSCE uh, national and then there's um, written papers. or Actually, they're online now, but uh, question um, similar exams like that. Yeah, that's interesting that the exam is all done online. I find that 
kind of hard to get my head around. How do you know people that have gone through that process and and how it's been for them? Certainly, yeah. When I was a PA student, and that sat my nationals only three or four years ago, it was paper um, exam, as as we'd all be familiar with. It's only I think re very relatively recently that it's moved to being an online exam. Uh, with software that watches you on your webcam as you do the exam on your screen to ensure that you're not cheating. And I think it's, uh, I guess, better for the students because they don't have to travel down to examination centres across the country uh, to do it. And uh, probably more efficient to run an exam with several hundred people at a time uh, using their own devices. So the the national written part is two two hour exams. Uh, each that have 100 questions and they're each single best answer as uh, sort of format so you get the, the question stem and then five possible answers and you have to choose one out of the five and um, that it's most the single best answer they call it. Yeah they can be quite tricky I know that's I think pretty much all of our exams are the same and you can often wheedle it down to one or two or two or three answers perhaps and then working out the difference between them can be can be hard it's definitely a technique yeah i was going to make the, the same point definitely took the words out of my mouth it's certainly a way of learning how to approach those sort of style of questions isn't it that can help um students become more confident and score better in the exams definitely one of the things i noticed that when i was a pa student there weren't an awful lot of pa exam questions past papers, mock exams, resources to use to, to revise. So we ended up using uh, online question banks that were designed for medical students and med finals, which may not have been that dissimilar, but also weren't really tailored to PAs. I think that's something that the RCP have picked up on as well, haven't they? Yeah, definitely. We've um, we've recognised that those, those resources for PAs revising um, fall far short of that are available for, for doctors at a, a similar stage. Um, and like you say, I think a lot of PAs do end up using medical school textbooks and question banks, which, as I said before, there, there is a degree of overlap, but the level being des designed for, for PAs is obviously not quite right. So there's been a large project at the RCP, which I've, I've been very fortunate to be a part of. Um, it's been going on for some time. I've kind of joined it partway through. Lots of others have done some really good work um, getting it to this point. And essentially, it is building a revision, a revision aid in the form of a question bank. Um, so over, over the past um, year or so, people have been submitting questions and um, trying to build up a large enough number um, in order for it to be a useful resource, and and that's been that's been quite a challenging process. It's um, it's something we really want to get right, and we have very high standards um, to achieve. Um, but we are coming towards the final stages of that process, and there will be more information coming out from from the RCP about how you can access that resource in in the coming months. As I said, it's not quite ready to to launch just yet but we are we are definitely approaching those final stages which which is really really exciting um but we are at the stage where we we need more questions and we would really value more question writers as well we've got a fantastic team at the moment um a mix of pas like yourself james um and then quite a lot of doctors as well so people in their training like myself um and also some some consultants and community specialists as well just recognizing that 
your curriculum and the, the various areas that you're tested on are not exactly the same as physicians, like kind of hospital doctors. So we've got a we've got a good team, but we could always always use more um, more question writers and people to submit questions. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, it's really exciting to hear that the RCP are producing this resource for physician associates that will be sort of tailored at the right level. Mm. What makes a good exam question, do you think, when you're writing for this sort of resource? How do you construct an exam question that works yeah, well? That's, that's a really good question, one I've been asking myself quite a lot as I've been getting my head around question writing. I think it's really important to have a good structure. Um, when we think about an exam question, we're not thinking about just the question and the options. There's different parts to it. Um, so for the PA national exam, we, we've well, we've really modelled the questions we put in our question bank on on that framework. And again, that's information that's out in the public domain. So we're not not, not using any special insider information. We're just using what what you guys have available, um, so that we make sure our questions represent those questions that you're asked. Um, in the exam as well. So what they always begin with, and again, this is the same for um, doctor medical exams, is kind of a clinical vignette. So-and-so comes to the A&E department complaining of these symptoms, this is their background. And we call that a STEM. That's the kind of overarching clinical picture. And that's supposed to represent general clinical life. It sh the scenario should be one that you could you could be faced with um, in everyday practice. So obviously wanting the exam to reflect reflect that real clinical practice as well. So you're given that that STEM, and then off the back of that STEM is a question. So that question might be, what is the most likely diagnosis? What what investigation? What what test would you would you like to do off the back of this information that you you've got in front of you? And all of those options need to be plausible. Um, you can't have a kind of a someone's got chest pain and one of the options being attacked by a bear in the forest <laughs> it kind of is tempting to um, come up with something a bit ridiculous sometimes um, when you're struggling to find an extra thing but we yeah the options list always needs to be ones that um that, that are that are possible that you could come across so it is a real art and it's definitely one i've i've got wrong at times when i've been writing questions so in the in the RCP question bank team, we've got some some approvers who look at all the questions that are submitted, and they will give feedback based on on your question and whether they think it's one that's good enough for the for the question bank. And we always aim for that feedback to be constructive, so that as as a question writer, you you learn how to make your questions better. And once you get into the rhythm of it, it's it's something anyone I think can learn and. Um, it, it can be very satisfying as well. When you're crafting those sorts of questions, they don't put anything in the question that is sort of superfluous or irrelevant, do they? So if there's mention of you're seeing this patient in general practice or you're seeing this patient in A&E, that sort of is a clue, isn't it, as to perhaps the type of diagnosis or question that they might be leading you down to. Yes, every single piece of information is is really key. Um, that's often a piece of feedback that we we give to question writers. This um, piece of information, for, so, so sometimes even past medical history doesn't doesn't help the um, the candidate to get to the right answer. So every single thing that's in in the question, I'm, I'm fairly confident this reflects the actual exam as well. 
is information that will will be helpful. One of the things I remember uh, being sort of told about these style of questions is to try and cover up the possible answers and just read mm. the stem initially and think, okay, what am I expecting to come up? What is the most likely diagnosis in my head? And if it's there in the list, that's probably your your answer you you consider first. Yeah, that's that's a really good um good good thing to do. And again, it's part of our question writing. Um, the way that we 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 write questions is we want it to pass something called the cover test, which is exactly as you describe. It's looking at the question and stem, and not looking at the the options list after that, and making sure that someone could answer that with all the information given. Because the risk is otherwise it becomes more of a true false question rather than a single best answer. It's finding, yeah, you, you end up looking at all the different options and working out which one is correct rather than using the clinical information in the STEM, which is obviously what we want people to be doing. In the STEM of the question, you're obviously going to be including uh, information about the patient's sex, age, background. Mm. Is there a sort of bias or a um, implicit sort of worry that you sometimes reinforce some stereotypes negatively or get things yeah. wrong with those sorts of questions? I think there's a growing realisation of how in in medicine in general, both in the assessment zone, but also in textbooks and other kind of medical materials, we, we have definitely been guilty of unintentionally, but reinforcing nonetheless some of those stereotypes again that's something that we we are very aware of and we do look carefully at all the the kind of extra information that we're we're giving in our question stems when we're writing for the re revision bank um just to make just to, i guess it's that growing awareness isn't it that we're we're all um trying trying to be more careful of and, and more understanding of but that's a really good point to make and one that we're we're definitely taking forward but we we certainly don't always get right and it's another thing that we we would really value i think the more that the more authors that you have in, in this setting um, and particularly from lots of different backgrounds we're, we're going to be better at, at re realizing when when we're doing that particularly when we don't mean to be are there things that students sort of get wrong or types of questions that people always stumble over uh, that they can learn from or or improve? That's the tricky one. Um, do you mean when we're writing questions or when we're sitting them and being assessed? Yeah, I guess both. <laughs> what what trips up the question writers and what trips up the students? Yeah, I, I think getting the, for, for speaking from a question writer's perspective, um, I think getting those options, that the options list right is, is, a, a, is it is a real art. So um, as a question writer, as part of the question bank, if you reach eight questions that you've you've had submitted and accepted, that's when you're invited into the approver group. Um, and there's support at every level for this. Um, and I have recently started being an approver and looking at a lot more questions myself. Um, and that's probably the area that I, I try and give the most feedback on because it, I think finding a balance of making a question difficult enough to be challenging and that you actually learn from um, versus making it really easy and just making people feel good about themselves but actually might not be helpful for passing the exam. Um, it's it's quite it's quite difficult to find that and I think again it's the kind of thing you, you only get better at by 
doing it more and more um, by seeing more and more questions and particularly seeing questions from PAs who sat the exam and, and know what, what is expected of them. Um, that's probably the trickiest bit. And then what you were saying also before about having the right relevant information, um, not making it too long, not making it too short. That's another area that that I, I think is is tricky and one that people need to, to need to learn by doing and, and getting some feedback on. Um, I'm not sure about questions that people tend to get wrong because I, I haven't, obviously I'm very, very separate from the national exam itself. Um, I, I have really nothing to, to do with that or the marking process or, um, and we don't use feedback on exam on the real exam either to to guide our question we're very much just driven by the curricular material and we and the what, what we know about the, the makeup of the exam i guess the temptation is always to revise really really well the areas that you know are going to come up in the most frequency and that that makes sense on on a number of levels doesn't it so i know that i think cardiology and respiratory um problems both in the community and and the inpatient setting are are really common so it people will tend to focus their revision on that and leave maybe the ethics and safeguarding and the the, the questions that are, are both hard to revise for, but also, you know, are going to come up less. I think it's easy to neglect those areas, but then, then they are still very important. So I, I guess just being aware of that and planning that into your revision is a good move. Apart from the uh, again, this might not make the episode if there's not a good answer to it. Um, <laughs> Apart from using the online question banks to revise, is there any other sort of techniques or resources or other ways to learn that you would recommend for people, PAs or doctors who are taking exams? Yeah, so um, I, again, I've, I've asked a couple of friends about this because I think the first thing to say about preparing for exams is everyone is very, very different and there is no one set way, one or one route that will lead to success. I think we are all such different learners um and it's one of one of my friends i was asking was saying oh is this for medical students or that you're you're talking about or, or are you talking about in the postgraduate setting so when you're both working and revising i think that's a very very different prospect isn't it when you've got the pressures of clinical work and the exhaustion that comes with that and then you've got to sit down in the evening and and do a whole load of work um and i think uh Regardless of that, there's a couple of there's a couple of th themes that seem to come up whenever I speak to to people about preparing for exams. Um, the first is planning. Um, as we talked about earlier, it's easy easy to do the the topics that we like and the ones that we feel confident in, and neglect the ones that we either don't feel are that important or we know that we're not that interested in. Or um, whereas if you say on a number of days, I'm going to do this topic, this topic, this topic, um, making sure that if you do stick to that plan, then you, you still have got some wiggle room at the end um, in order before before the exam to, to make sure you consolidate that knowledge as well. I think that, I mean, certainly for me, that's a very helpful technique because it helps me calm some of the anxieties that comes with exams, knowing that, oh, if, I, if I'm able to kind of do this much each day or if I know that this plan will make sure I cover everything in the curriculum, then I then I should be should be all right. Um, and then alongside that, I think being realistic with your planning as well. So I remember at medical school trying to revise for kind of eight hours a day with five minute breaks every so often. And it was completely um, impossible and unrealistic. Whereas 
I think as you get older, you realise what's the what's the length of time I can realistically concentrate for. Plus, adding in the fact you don't have the, the luxury of of all the days that you have at medical school or, or um, in your university studies to to do that. Um, so planning is one thing. I think if you're a visual learner and you you like writing notes definitely do that. Um, I remember living with people who had post-it notes everywhere, on the mirrors, on the fridge, just with all those little facts that you just have to learn. Um, they, they, have to, they have to be in there and they have to be within reach on, on the exam day. Um, but I think you have to be aware of writing notes for the sake of notes. And I've definitely done that before, where you end up writing out textbooks and rewriting notes that you've done from lectures. And it, it, it feels good. It feels like you're doing something, but you always have to be checking that that is is going into your into your head and into your mind and and question banks and past questions is definitely one way another way that I know lots of people find helpful is having revision buddies having a group that you do meet up with periodically in order to to check your knowledge maybe teach each other certain topics so if one person really likes Sobs and Gyne and you really don't then that's that's great to kind of work together um but again, always just being wary of that comparison that we're all so, so um, can so easily do, and and that can leave us feeling feeling worse if we're sort of saying, oh, so and so so much better than than me in this area. Um, there are there are people that are helpful, and there are people that are maybe not so helpful. And surrounding yourself with with people that challenge you, but also support you, that's that's really key. Is there anything that you found helpful in in your years of assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, a lot of the points you were making, I'm nodding along to going, yeah, that rings true for me as well. For me, I think it's spaced repetition. So picking up something one week and perhaps getting the answer right doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to convert to a long term memory and I'm going to remember that knowledge two weeks down the line, a month down the line. So it's about revisiting uh, the same topics and building up knowledge um, and actively doing something about it rather than just assuming well I knew it once it will stay in my brain because if we don't use it we forget quite a lot of what we've ever learned and what we've known um, without applying it properly so I think definitely spacing out and repeating uh, topics are really important to so make sure that you're converting that sort of short term okay I remember what that lecturer ta taught me this morning into long term, I've actually got it in my memory and I can use it and recall it when I need to is really important. It must be quite difficult because I know you guys have to recertify with your exam every six years. Um, and I guess if you're working in one setting, for example, GP, revising all, because my understanding is the exam, it, it's a set curriculum and it, it keeps you as a generalist. So how do you plug those gaps when you're not working in, in that area? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So yes, as PAs, we have to basically take our national written exam every five or six years to recertify. So it's basically like taking finals again, five or six years down the training. And if you're like me, I'm a PA that I work in general practice and I work in acute medicine in the hospital. So I have stayed quite general. So hopefully when it comes to me recertifying, a lot of it will be familiar from my day-to-day -day work. But I've got PA friends who have specialised in obstetrics or cardiology and may never have thought about paediatrics or, or a rash or those kind of things. So it will be difficult for some PAs to specialise. I don't know whether that's the best test as well of uh, physician associates, generalist skills, and whether that's going to be 
in place in the future for the profession. I quite like the idea of remaining as a generalist as a PA, but I know that of the PAs won't want to do that exam. And, and is it right that they should have to face an exam? And if they don't pass it, what happens to their job? And there's all sorts of questions that I think the GMC are working through as part of the regulatory process. And what form that takes in the future is sort of not decided at the moment. But online question banks and this RCP question bank will be a great resource to help um, PAs cope with that um, whilst it is in place at the moment. One of the pieces of advice I would give is as you're getting towards your finals um, and your national exams is you do need to be aware of that time constraint and you do need to be practicing under exam conditions and timing yourself because if you run out of time and you don't answer all the questions there may be you know five questions at the end of the paper that you know all five answers to but if you spend 10 minutes stuck on question number 95 and never get any further you're not going to give yourself the best chance. So I guess one of the techniques I would advise is if you don't know the answer, you really don't know it, flag that question, come back to it at the end if you've got time, but do the questions you can do first. And talking from experience, I will put my hands up and say I failed my second year university PA exam the first time round. I wasn't prepared well enough. Um, I'd been going to placement, I'd been doing all my hours of revising at home, but I don't think I'd been revising well. I had, I'd just been sort of passively reading books and maybe copying bits into notes, but not really using the knowledge, not really applying it uh, properly. And I certainly hadn't been using online exam question banks and, and those kind of things. I think um, when, when people do fail, for example, um, PACES exam, and that's the clinical OSCE that, um, doctors do if they're in IMT training, which is um, the kind of medical training and the step up to becoming a medical registrar. That's a really common exam to fail. Um, sometimes it's preparation, sometimes it's just on the day you, you don't perform as well as you know that you can. All the cases that come up are, are, are really tricky and, and not ones that you're so comfortable with. And very often people will immediately rebook and aim to resit that exam as quickly as possible, kind of holding on to the preparation that they have done for the original exam. But I think it is also important to take some space before diving straight back into the revision and the preparation, kind of attending to those emotions and those feelings that, you, that everyone has after they fail and, and understanding the failure, not as a, a kind of an issue that is something a problem with yourself, but um, trying to identify the areas where you have got weakness so that you can be constructive with your preparation next time. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I can remember after getting the news that I'd failed the first time, it was just before Christmas. And I was just like, right, that's it. Christmas, New Year's, it's cancelled. I'm miserable. I don't want to don't want to be festive, et cetera, et cetera. But it was really important to just have that break mentally and say, okay, in the new year, I'll pick up fresh I'll start revising again I still want to really do it I'm still determined and it was just important to to have that mental headspace initially to sort of come to terms with the fact that it it wasn't the end of the world it's totally fixable you can if you're determined and you put the work in you you can pass second time I don't think there's anything more I had prepped to talk about was there anything that we ought to cover 
No, I think we've had a, a good um, good conversation on lots of different topics. Um, I guess just one more plug, if I can, for the for the RCP um, question bank for PAs. Uh, as I said, we we welcome authors from a wide range of backgrounds, so doctors, PAs themselves, um, any stage of doctors as well. So through from foundation through to consultants, um, having that wide range of expertise can only make our question bank better. I guess the only the only caveats we do have is um, we don't ask PA students. So if you haven't finished your training yet, if you haven't passed the uh, the national exam yet, um, we ask that you you join our team once once you have done that. And the same with medical students as well. I mean, it, it is the postgraduate um, doctors that we're we're asking to be part of that. Um, and just as some incentives, there is training at every stage. So as a new author, there's a CPD accredited course that you can sit online. There's also a number of training videos going into a bit more detail about the things I was talking about earlier, the, the, the question stem, option list, the types of questions that, that we, we want in, in, in the question bank. And then there are incentives. So as I said, you can become an approver if you get eight questions submitted and approved. And we still want you to write questions if you're an approver, but you'll also have a role with providing feedback. So if you are interested, we will put a link um, in, in this podcast description, um, which will, will bring you to a sign up page so that you can get in touch with us and we can start you on your question writing journey. Perfect. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for explaining that all. And I would really encourage any PAs who've listened to this, or anybody really who's listening to this who's eligible to get involved with helping to write the questions. The more diverse background of people that we get writing these questions, the better the quality of the the product in the end, isn't it? And like you say, I'll leave a, a link in the show notes so that if people are on the Physician Associate podcast feed, they'll be able to find uh, the link through to the sign up for the RCP question banks there and it'll also be in the RCP podcast feed version as well. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much.